What is the evidence for near-death experiences? Can any of these stories be trustworthy? Uh, do they tell us anything about life after death and potentially the existence of God? Well, this is a question that is fascinating to me. I got to tell you about three years ago in teaching the resurrection class at Biola, I started thinking, I'm going to look into near-death experiences, totally skeptical, not thinking they would be a piece of valid evidence at all. After reading our guest today's work and other ones, I was pleasantly surprised at some of the evidence for near-death experiences. So, uh, Dr. Steve Miller, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, to let our audience know, and then we're going to jump right into the evidence uh, for near-death experiences. You're an associate professor of philosophy at Kennesaw State University. I didn't realize this, but it's the second largest university in Georgia. You teach classes on introduction, religion, death, and dying, critical thinking, and you've written on the existence of God, uh, deathbed experiences, and near-death experiences. I first heard about your book, which I'm going to hold up, which is just called Near-Death Experiences, by a mutual friend of ours, a colleague of mine at Biola, J.P. Moreland. And when J.P. Mm -hmm. says something, that gets my attention. I read this book and walked away. I was like, oh my goodness, there is more to this than I imagined. In fact, even here at Biola, your book is assigned in some classes on the mind and the body. So let me just start by asking you this question. What sparked your interest in examining and studying near-death experiences? Well, for one thing, I became a believer when I was in high school and immediately after making a decision for Christ, I began to go through periods of doubt. Uh, when I would hear something about evolution, uh, some of my friends could just say, oh, well, that's just all wrong and go on with their lives. And I would say, hey, what about that? And I'd have to read both sides of issues. Uh, and I, th I think the Holy Spirit was the one who was who was convincing me of the truth. But the what the Holy Spirit used was evidence. And I just had to read both sides of everything. When I went to the Bible, the Bible was very clear that in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with evidence. He claimed that he was giving evidence to the disciples. So all through my life, I've been had a skeptical mind when somebody would say something, make some kind of truth claim. I was always saying, what's the source? Where does this come from? Or the source is good. I was always weighing evidence. That was a part of my spiritual life. And so uh, when somebody said about 10 years ago, uh, hey, have you read this book, Heaven is for Real? Uh, I said, well, no, I mean, because I really didn't think there was any evidence there. I'd studied apologetics and evidences all my life. And uh, they, and, and I, but just as a favor, I read it. As, as an apologetic work, I didn't think it was that strong. It was just someone's testimony. Uh, but it had some characteristics that I thought, okay, they seem to be a sincere family and, and whatever, but there's always a possible profit motive of publishing a book. But on the book, on the back of the book, somebody said, uh, I believe it was a physician who said, I've studied near-death experiences, and this, uh, this person's testimony is consistent with the experiences that we're studying. And I thought, somebody's been studying this stuff? So uh, I went back and began studying the research, not just reading a bunch of people's testimonies, but looking at the academic research that had been done on near-death experiences. Tell me what surprised you most, because you went to this with a skeptical eye. And by the way, five pages into your book, I kind of resonated. I was like, thank you for not just believing this is true, just like being skeptical and demanding evidence 
But diving into this, what kind of surprised you? Because you've been studying this for over a decade now. Well, I was just surprised that there was any research, any real research. And it was not done uh, through seminaries. It was not pastors. These were academic physicians, neurologists, people who were uh, within their fields to study it. And, and in fact, I'm just going to read this off in order to get the numbers right. But before I did my study, um, I found out that over 900 articles on near-death experiences were published in the scholarly literature. And this is, this is uh, like The Lancet, one of the top medical journals in the world. Okay, mm. so uh, psychiatry, critical care quarterly. These are the secular best of the best journals in their area. And there were uh, over 900 articles in magazines, in journals. And um, in the 30-year period after Moody produced his seminal work, that was 1975, 55 researchers or teams published at least 65 studies of over 3,500 near-death experiences. Now, I wow. was shocked. What I thought is we need to get away from these personal testimony books and things on the Internet. They're, they're good, but they just let us see we need to go back and see what research has been done because we don't know these people's motives, what's going on in their lives. Um, we need to get at solid evidence. Somebody needs to kind of summarize where we are in this research and see if there's any real evidence for the afterlife there. That's what pulled me in. Your book, in terms of how much you just take an introduction to the topic, was a great starting place for me. You wrote it in 2012. What came out just in 2017, you and I were talking about this book. It's called The mm -hmm. Science of Near-Death Experiences. This was published. It's all by peer-reviewed journal articles in the Missouri Medicine, the Journal of Missouri State Medical Association between 2013 and 2015. So people might dismiss near-death experiences. They might question what the evidence follows from it. But to say that there's not serious academic careful research and many scholars questioning their materialistic worldview is just simply false. We're seeing a shift, so to speak, in our midst, even though we may not know where it goes. All right, we're going to jump into the evidence. And those of you uh, who are joining us, if you have questions about near-death experiences, we will come to those. But let's get on the same page first. The obvious question is, you're a philosopher, so give us a definition. What do we mean by a near-death experience? Well, I think it's easiest just to describe one. Uh, there are typical elements of a near-death experience. People will have, like, let's say, a cardiac arrest. And at that point, you have cessation of heartbeat. You have cessation of breathing. That's called uh, clinical death. So that person's brain should shut down at that time. Uh, there may be some kind of minor something going on in the brain, but they are not having a vivid uh, conscious experience while this is going on. But after these people are are shocked back to reality and become conscious, uh, they number one, they don't tell anybody <laughs> what they experienced sure. because they're afraid they're going to be sent to the mental ward or whatever. So they typically, especially they don't tell their doctor, they might tell a nurse, they might tell a family, family member. But as people began interviewing these people, they found out, number one, they would find themselves floating over their body. If they were being resuscitated, they would actually see the resuscitation going on. Then they may look into the corner of the room and see a uh, tunnel, and they may go through this tunnel. 
On the other side, they may see a landscape of incredible beauty and uh, talk to deceased relatives or uh, angelic beings. They may have their entire life review during the, they will say my entire life, I went through it with this being of light who knew everything and uh, reviewed my life. And then it actually has closure that rather than just being jerked back in the middle of a sentence, examine your dreams sometime as a comparison. When the alarm rings, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'm really doing something stupid. Who knows what's going on? It's just stream of consciousness nonsense. In these, the whole scenario makes sense and it has closure at the end. Typically, uh, he'll, you'll have a conversation with someone who, and you try to determine, is it my time to come back or should I stay? I want to stay, but what do I need to do? And then you come back and find yourself in your body. So that is a near-death experience. That was a fascinating point where you make in your book, you talk about the difference between dreams and between a near-death experience, that dreams you wake up suddenly and it's jarring, but near-death experiences seem to have a consistent narrative of a beginning, a middle, and an end like a story where there could be a kind of design argument that could be made here. I haven't heard anybody fully develop this. And I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket, but that's a significant difference between dreams and between near-death experiences for which somebody could make a kind of design argument. Now, uh, tell me very briefly, and then my next question after this will be, I want to know what you find evidentially significant. But one of the things that surprised me was that even non-Western uh, countries will report very similar kinds of near-death experiences. This isn't just in America, in the West. You have Hindus, you have Muslims, you have atheists. What are the common experiences that people have and report when they have a near-death experience? Let's start there and then let's shift to what makes some of these evidentially significant. Sure. Well, under naturalism, you'd expect that either this is something that is being caused by our expectations, our cultural expectations, our worldview expectations, but it's uh, that that just doesn't make sense because um, even even among Christians, but uh, between the Bible and the kind of fanciful ideas we have from the media, we kind of expect that when we die, we'll come before God or we'll stand in line. Then it's our turn. We talk to God and we find out whether we're getting into heaven or not. We're not expecting a near-death experience. We're expecting final death. And so the last thing we're expecting is to come out of our bodies and look back and see what's going on on the operating table. That's, the, we're, that's just not something we're expecting. Besides, when someone has a heart attack, uh, they're not thinking about the afterlife. Our first reaction tends to be denial or let's say I'm drowning, I'm thinking of how can I get up to the air? I'm not thinking of my right. theology at that time. So the expectations don't explain it. The similarity, this, this regular experience that we're seeing globally. Uh, but if it were something physical, then, then you would expect, for example, you'd expect that when, when I came back to, if it were a hallucination or if it were some kind of a dream, it would just stop right in the middle. Why is this a consistent story as if it's directed? When you're watching a movie, when you're watching a film on TV, romantic comedy comes to the end, guy, you know, he loved her, then they hate each other. Now they're back together 
and you know, but it doesn't stop in the middle of a chase scene. Right. The movie has an ending. Well, that means you've had a director that planned this thing. That yes, you're right. This needs to be explored in much more depth. I start off the discussion in my book, but there's and so what do we see globally? I went to uh, Dr. Long's site where he collects people just turn in their ins their experiences and I looked for all the experiences that were in not only other countries but countries that differ very much worldview wise from America to compare them and what I found was astoundingly they're coming out of their bodies they're looking back and seeing their body on the table they're going through some go through a um, uh, some kind of a tunnel Others will go through, and I'm talking about even within our culture. Sure. Sometimes it may be more of the stairs they're going up and going into somewhere, but they're going somewhere. They see angelic beings. They see deceased relatives. It is just extremely similar. Now, they may call some of the things something different in another yeah. culture. Like if, if you're a Muslim and you see God, well, you're going to call him Allah, right? Because that's who God is to you. And so, and if you're in another country, you may call him by the name of one of your guys, but you recognize him as, as, I think they're seeing the same thing. They just may call it different names because of their culture. And there are some slight cultural differences as well. Uh, uh, I think the way people are dressed on the other side, if you think about it, if this is a non-corporeal existence, then what, what's the fashion over there? Do we expect to see the same thing? Why would you even need clothes on the other side if the temperature is perfect? So I think that we see what people on the other side want us to see that 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 feels culturally um, easy on us to be able to get the message we need to get. So there are slight differences. But why why is there any similarity at all? And it's a very consistent experience. This is something that would not be predicted by naturalism. So I, I want you to jump off this and tell me if you agree. I assume that you do. But what got my attention with the near-death experiences is not that people say they saw loved ones, not even that they come out and have life change. I have met multiple people who have shared near-death experiences with me, Steve, and said it changed our life. That wasn't enough to convince me about this. What convinced me is when people were able to report information that they could not have known in the physical state in which they were in. So in this book by, I mentioned earlier, The Science of Near-Death Experiences, which again is the University mm. of Missouri Press, they've got a documentation of nine cases of people who have a near-death experience, report seeing a loved one who is dead, come back and discover that that person had died and it was unbeknownst to them. That's a moment yes. that says, wait a minute. There's other experiences of people saying, I left my body and I saw these particular facts in another room, in another operating table. They describe it when they not only were not physically there, but they were physically brain dead. Evidentially for me, that was the point that gave me pause and said, wait a minute. If we're purely physical beings, how could you have access to this information? That's the part where they become evidentially significant. Do you agree, disagree? Would you add anything to that? I would just say this has been studied very well. I'll mention a couple of places it's been studied. Uh, Dr. Sabom, who was a, he was a skeptical cardiologist when he first heard about uh, near-death experiences. 
And uh, the nurse who was sharing about them challenged him, said, well, you're a cardiologist. Uh, why don't you interview some of your some of your patients? He said, none of my patients have ever experienced anything like this. They would have told me he, he went out and started interviewing his patients. And many of them were saying, yes, we went to the other side. And he said so his, his skepticism stayed with him. He said this, this just can't can't be true. But he decided to do a study and pretty much to prove Moody wrong in his original book on their death experiences and to say that, no, that they're not really coming out of their bodies. About, I think about a year into his study, he realized, no, they were out of their bodies. The way he did this is he had a, uh, he had one group of his patients who claimed to have come out of their bodies and watch their resuscitation from above. Then he had another set of his patients who did not have a near-death experience. So he asked both sets, what happened in your resuscitation? Now, the ones that had not seen it from above, of course, they didn't see anything. So right. they just had to imagine what might have happened from what they've seen on TV or reports. Uh, Sabon said, all of them got it wrong. He said, you think of resuscitation as being just exactly the same every time. He said, but there are nuances of difference in the way it's handled. He said, the people who did not have the experience always got it wrong. The people who had the experiences got it right in, in fascinating detail. And so he became a believer in this. He started wow. going, going to uh, a more conservative church and learning the Bible. <laughs> and he said, this is, uh, and now he was not just your average cardiologist next door. He was teaching cardiology at Emory. And this is, this is a very good book. Uh, since we're showing books there. here, okay. I'm trying, you know, you got to go the opposite on these things. Recollections of death, a medical investigation. This is okay. not for your casual reading. This is for somebody who likes to see how okay. he was thinking scientifically as he went through this. So, yes. And then you have individual cases that are just uh, incredible that are well documented. Let's, so we're going to come back to some of those individual cases, but you've laid out what a near-death experience is, why you're convinced by it, when they're evidentially significant. Let's run through some of the common naturalistic responses we hear. And uh, one of my viewers, a friend, says it really well. So I'm going to put the question up here and ask you. Uh, he says, I was recently trying to show the supernatural is real to an atheist, and I brought up NDEs, and he said they were just the brain's last-ditch effort of something and NDEs have been debunked. Your thoughts? I've tried to read the significant uh, writings by people who try to debunk uh, near-death experiences. And I welcome people from any worldview chiming in on these things. Again, these are not necessarily primarily Christians that are arguing this. These are just researchers who found something that was fascinating and they thought that this couldn't be, this wasn't what I was taught in medical school would happen because they were typically taught more of a naturalism. There's a naturalistic explanation for everything. Typically, these researchers like Van Lommel in Holland or Sabom, they were mostly secular thinkers who were, were brought to believe this was a true experience with the afterlife just because of the weight of the evidence. So, um, now, to me, so when I read these people and I try to if, give me something to read if there's something I haven't seen from a naturalistic perspective. But when I read them, typically they've not really read a lot of um, 
of studies, they've just heard something and they're repeating it. They tend to read other atheists and what they've said about near-death experiences rather than actually taking a book like Pim Van Lommel's Consciousness Beyond Life, uh, you know, his patients in Holland, they tend to be very secular. Yeah. Why are they having these out-of-body experiences and, and what's going on? And he's the one who actually published his in The Lancet, okay? Very well respected. The, the people that I see arguing against it, I don't get the feeling that they've ever even read these books because they seem mm. unfamiliar with the evidence. They make big claims to, uh, to say that it's been debunked. Well, people, yes, have argued against it, but typically they're not going into the research. So let me go back to one other thing and, and mention on this line. Um, okay, so let's say I, I think the questioner was saying that it was just physical things that were causing the, yeah. the near-death experiences. But if that were so, what about Sabom's study? How did they know what was going on if, if everything's physical? They're, they're, they couldn't have seen it with their eyes or heard it in some way in that condition. Sabom said, okay, as a practicing cardiologist who knows a lot about what happens when your uh, heart stops, when you stop breathing – these people had to have been out of bo their body to see that. L let me give you one more example of that. Um, okay. and, and I'll just read this to get it right so I don't fumble around with it. But one, and, and this is on, uh, I think, CBS or something. You can go on YouTube and actually see her. But, um, but there was a lady who had Pamela Reynolds. Uh, so she underwent yeah. a risky brain surgery that required lowering her body temperature to about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, draining all the blood from her head. I mean, if you drain the blood from your head, she had to have a, a, a tumor taken out. Of course, if you don't have any blood, mm. it's not going to start bleeding. So it makes sense. By three primary tests, a silent EEG, an unresponsive brain stem, no blood flow through the brain, she's clinically dead. Yet after the surgery, she reports being very much alive during the surgery, viewing the procedure from outside of her body. She described in accurate detail a conversation that transpired during the surgery. Basically, during the surgery, uh, one of the physicians was having a hard time finding a vein in her leg and was talking about it. Now, at this time, the blood was drained out of her head when this conversation happened. OK, um, there was everything was unresponsive. Even if she could have heard something, she had something in her ear that was clicking 100 decibel clicks, assaulting her ears over 10 times per second to monitor the brain activity. She couldn't hear mm. anything. Everything was covered. Her eyes were covered. Everything was covered except for the area on her head where they were doing the surgery. And yet she described in detail some of the instruments that were used. Dr. Sawbaum actually studied this to see what happened. He said, I've never done a surgery like this. He asked for pictures of the instruments, and they were just like she described them. So if it's all just something physical, how do you explain that? And can I give one other example? Yeah, go for it. Not, let, me, let me sum up very quick and then come back to this example. So the sure. question was, how do we know near-death experiences aren't generated by the brain? When somebody says to me, near-death experiences have been disproved, they were generated by the brain. I would say, oh, that's interesting. How do you know that? I'm actually really curious. The person who says this, how do they know near-death experiences have been debunked? 
And how do they know they're a projection of the brain? That's a claim to knowledge. I'd like to know how this person knows that. Second are these cases that Dr. Miller is giving where somebody is technically brain dead, uh, blood drained from their brain. There's no reported brain activity and they're able to report information that they couldn't have physically known from that location. That tells us that something more is going on here than the brain. So if those accounts are true, and there's dozens and dozens of carefully documented cases, then it challenges this reductive kind of explanation that narrows it just down to the brain. So last thing that I want to hear the story, some parts of near-death experiences could potentially be explained by the brain. Whether it's an increase in chemicals causes certain feeling or maybe jar memories. Like we are fully conceding that some parts of near-death experiences could have a brain explanation. But what they can't do is account for all of the data that's been carefully recorded, which tells us more is going on than the brain. So that was bringing it together for folks. Give another story like the one you shared of Pamela Reynolds that that, uh, advances the idea you're making here. Well, one thing to realize is that these experiences are extremely common. Uh, when they did surveys, the United States, Australia, Germany, it's like from four to six percent of the population claims to have had such an experience. So this is not some anomalous thing that's like one in a million that we're reading about uh, where, hey, somebody maybe maybe Pamela Reynolds just guessed what happened. And if you got millions of people having surgery, somebody's going to guess it right. But you've got 4% of the population. That's about one out of 25 people. What I realize, and what's very powerful about this, is that you can start talking to people within your circles of trust. Number one, I think, I'll, I'll tell the person who wrote in, go ahead and read whatever your friends have read that, that debunked it. But then go and read these studies on the other side. That's what I've always done to try to come to the truth of things. But um, So I was writing my book on on near-death experiences, um, a relative had come to visit, a cousin who I've known uh, just at family gatherings. He's a history teacher, has a master's degree in history, real sharp mind, just a person you'd love. Um, And my mom said, hey, uh, tell Bucky what you're writing on. And I said, well, I'm writing on near-death experiences. He says, oh, I've had three of those. I said, seriously? So uh, this is when I began to realize these things are common. They're all around us. But naturalism has been so strong. It's just made cowards of all of us. And we won't talk about these things. So Bucky says, okay, here's one of what happened to me. He said, I was laying in bed. I was sleeping one night, middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning. I feel a weight on my chest, like Hmm. something huge has dropped on my chest. Uh, I came out of my body, looked down at my body. I saw like a, a uh, so this is a partial uh, experience. He, he saw a tunnel kind of up in the corner of his room. There were some angelic-like beings, I think he mentioned, that were around. Then he went back into his body and uh, just woke up in a cold sweat and sat on the side of his bed. Immediately, the phone rang, and from about 90 miles away, a nurse was calling to say that his dad had just had a fatal heart attack. Now that's called a um, that's that's called a shared death experience. Now you say it's just things going on in the brain that are causing this. It's, right. it's the dying brain. These are things that happen in the dying brain. Bucky's brain was not dying. 
Okay. He Hmm. experienced something that his dad was experiencing 90 miles away. He didn't even know his dad was ill. Now, you don't know Bucky. You don't know me. So you really ought to kind of question whether I'm telling you the truth or not. All I'm saying is start talking to people around you and you'll start hearing that it's people you do trust that don't have any reason to be lying to you who are telling these things. Now, let's broaden what Bucky experienced a little bit. Uh, Now, Sean, you mentioned that um, I believe in that Missouri or whatever book you were reading. What was it? Where is it from? It's called Science and Near-Death Experiences, University of Missouri Press. Missouri. Okay, University of Missouri Press. So uh, you mentioned something about people knowing that someone had died before they had died, something along that line. Well, that's what Bucky experienced. Actually, I found out back in the late 1800s, some of the top people at Cambridge decided to study this. They did a survey, and it was very well done. These are people from Oxford and Cambridge doing this okay. study, and they um, they surveyed 17,000 people in the general population. This okay. was uh, chartered by a uh, International Psychological Association. They said, we keep hearing these things. We want to get to the bottom of it. So they found that like around 10% of people said that they had seen someone who wasn't physically there. Now, it turns out the largest subcategory of that were people who had seen someone who had just died that they didn't know about the, the death. So they narrowed this down and they said, hey, there's a way to test this uh, statistically. We know the odds of a person dying at any given time. So let's collect all of these that were within a 24-hour period that somebody saw somebody who died. Maybe they were overseas. Maybe they'd not seen them in years. They certainly didn't know they were sick. This is evidential, right? Okay, but how could the timing be? Well, we could know um, statistically that if, if people are just guessing or they happen to have a vivid dream at the same time and it's just chance, we know about how many chance happenings should happen with that many people. It turned out when they ran the statistics, there were 440 times as many people having these experiences as would have been expected had it just been uh, a chance occurrence. So what I'm seeing a lot of people like Shermer has a book on the afterlife. He had an experience actually that was pretty wild. The only way he can explain his own experience is to say, um, to say that, well, hey, there are billions of people out there. We just happen to have a lucky experience. And sure. I want to say, hey, Shermer, get into the research. This has actually been researched and see what it says. There's just well, way too many of these happening to be explained away by chance. Well, I think it's really interesting that A.J. Iyer, a very influential atheist from a generation ago, described one. But um, we're, we're going to come to some of the worldview implications and the comments some people have asked, what falls for this for the worldview. But let me kind of run through uh, some of these, for example, one one of the some of the common naturalistic uh, responses here. Uh, okay. If everyone has a soul, so there's this mind that exists apart from the brain, why wouldn't everyone have a near-death experience? Well, I think that's only a problem if you assume that there's some physical trigger that causes the soul to separate from the body. Um, I don't 
I don't, if there is, I don't think we've identified it. Uh, maybe for some people, it's when their breathing stops and their, uh, respirate, their, their respiration and their heart stops. But maybe it's something different. Maybe it's when certain brain cells cease to function or go into dormancy that they have something like that. We don't know what the trigger is. Therefore, some may be experiencing the trigger physically and some may not. Or maybe it's not triggered by something physical at all. Maybe this is just like kind of like a vision and uh, God wants certain people to have uh, this experience because of some need in their life. Um, and, and maybe others he doesn't. That's not really a big issue to me okay. unless there's something I'm missing. Okay. No, that's I, I think that's fair. It doesn't follow that if somebody's body and soul and some have near-death experiences that everybody would necessarily have a near-death experience. There could be some trigger or cause that's unknown to us that's not discovered yet that's driving it. And just because we don't know it and it doesn't happen every time uh, doesn't overturn that it does happen sometimes, I think is is the point, which is helpful. How about this one? Um, why can't out-of-body experiences be accounted for by a good guess? I've heard this, like, look, the Pam Reynolds case, if you're in an operating room, you're going to be able to guess certain things you see in an operating room. Why can't we explain away some of the phenomena that people described in a different locale as simply being a good guess? Well, I think the uh, study back in the late 1800s, it found that uh, even whether you're guessing or whether it was just pure chance, the odds were just way at 440 times as many as you would say if somebody were guessing. Uh, I think the Sabom study, again, going back to him, he was saying that all of his patients who did not have near-death experiences guessed it wrong. So we're not that great at mm. guessers and things like that as we think we are. And sometimes they're hearing conversations in another room where they weren't even there. So I, I just don't, these type things have been studied and there's no good evidence that people could guess of this nature. That's I mean, good. I mean, Buck, Bucky wasn't guessing. He wasn't, I mean, he just had an experience and it was his dad, you know? I mean, mm. how do you explain that timing, that exact timing? Now, if Bucky were having an experience like that every week and one time it was right, you could say, oh, okay, by chance at some point it's going to happen. But it's not like one of a million dreams. This was a very special event that happened where you wake up in a cold sweat. Same thing happened to my wife. Uh, she, um, you know, you start talking to people and you find them everywhere. I thought, why, why haven't you ever told me this? But one night, um, I believe it was uh, after she had graduated from high school, she had this vivid dream of her grandmother in a casket. And uh, she just woke up in a cold sweat. It was not an ordinary dream. She told her sister about it afterwards. And sure enough, in about a month, her grandmother was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and died a few months later. Wow. But, uh, but these are typical. Mark Twain had a uh, vivid experience like that, and he was no preacher for sure. So uh, there is beyond chance and guessing from all the research we've seen so far. What about wishful thinking? Some have argued that there's like a desire for certain things and say the afterlife, that there would be a God who would love me, that I would see somebody and out of a positive experience with them. Or I talked with a fellow who had a near-death experience and he said, I was kind of held by my father and loved. Couldn't this be a projection of some deeper psychological need that we have? Why doesn't that explain away near-death experiences? 
Well, it doesn't seem to explain why atheists would have an experience like this, because I would think that they're hoping that they're right and that they're going to experience nothingness at the end. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, but everybody just wants there to be. We just can't stand the thought of life ending. I don't know where they do their research. For me, I've never really had a problem with nothingness. Uh, life's been mm. pretty hard for me. My first wife died of cancer, uh, leaving me with little children. I've been taking care of aging relatives for the last 25 years. I've always got more than I can accomplish. Uh, to me, it sounds like if you died and that was it, it'd be like, whew, well, that's a relief. No more responsibilities. It doesn't bother me at all. So uh, I'd like to see some research that shows that everybody's just longing for this afterlife. I think actually most people just live in denial about death and don't think about it uh, very much until they have to. But wishful thinking, again, wishful thinking does not explain why Sabom's patients knew knew what was going on in their resuscitation. You know, that does not explain how Pam Reynolds was able to see those things. Yeah. I mean, how many people when they're having a heart attack are wishing, oh, I, I just wish I could be up to where I could get a better view of the resuscitation. Nobody's, nobody's thinking about those things. So many things about the near-death experience that I didn't even mention. Typically, when people go to the other side, they'll talk about how Time seems to change and disappear. There's no a time, a place you're in a, some kind of a place where time is different and space is different, where they see something way off and can be there immediately or hear what's going on. And, and time just seems to disappear. Who's expecting that? I mean, I'm not expecting it from a, a Christian standpoint. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Why would there be this common experience? They're not wishing for that. Hmm. I think that's really fair. There's two things that caught my attention that made it seem not projection is the negative NDEs that people have. Uh, one study sure. suggested about five percent. I'm sorry, one out of five NDEs were negative, and some of these are terrifying for people demonic type beings, hellish figures. So why would you project that? I think it's a fair question. And second, some of the kids who have near-death experiences, there are times where kids have had a near-death experience come out of this and adopted religious beliefs different than their parents and caused a lot of friction and pain in the family. There's just so many cases that don't match at all what we would expect based on people's own testimony if these were mere projections. I um, like your answer better than mine. Oh, and, gosh. But let me <laughs> add to it. Uh, I think that uh, uh, bringing up children, that's very interesting. Um, that was noticed by a great physicist back in the early 1900s when he started studying deathbed experiences, and he would talk about children having these experiences before they died. And often they would meet with angels on the other side. And none of them spoke of angels as having wings. Although our culture, not the Bible, but our culture always talks about angels with wings. And yet none of these children would talk about it. In fact, more recently, one, uh, one woman was interviewed. Uh, she was in talking to her child who kept talking about seeing things on the other side. And uh, she and and she wanted to identify with her child to be acting like she was believing, 
And uh, she said when the child was talking about seeing angels, she asked her mom, Mommy, do you see angels? And, and she said, oh, yes, I see them. And the child was pretty smart. She said, okay, uh, what do they look like? And the mother <laughs> said, oh, the one I see has these huge wings. And, and the child said, Mom, you don't have to lie to me. They don't have wings. Wow. And so if, if, it's, if it's caused by cultural expectations or what you want, you would think it would be the way you see it. Other children would say, uh, somebody will say, oh, on the other side, there's uh, going to be all these mansions and say, well, I don't see any mansions. You know, where are the mansions? Actually, that could be probably better translated dwelling places. Sure. They would see people being places, but the, the cultural expectations are just not being seen often, especially with children. Okay, so a common one is LSD. Like, can't people okay. who have LSD have these spiritual, almost out-of-body kinds of experiences? If we can mirror these near-death experiences by taking a drug, isn't that good reason to believe that there's ultimately a physical kind of explanation for this phenomena? Well, it's an interesting parallel, and I'm glad that people have studied that. Typically, when I see people saying, oh, well, LSD, it's just they produce these near-death experiences and it's just the same thing uh, they say the same thing about dmt about uh ketamine or ketamine you know they'll, they'll say but when i go into it do, do this if you want to research that out just go on the web don't look at lsd and near-death experiences just look at people's lsd experiences look okay. at their experiences with various drugs like dmt they're there are some parallels in the sense that they feel like it's real. They feel like there's something significant happening outside of the body and they're, they're getting some great insight on reality that they never had before. Well, that's, that's a parallel, a general parallel. But if you read their experiences, they're not coming out of their bodies, looking at a hurting body going through a tunnel to have a personal conversation with the being of life. They're just, they're just random, crazy stuff. And uh, it's kind of like, and, and one guy, Nelson, who's a neurologist who wrote a book against near-death experiences, he, he cited a study saying that when people pass out, he said, hey, they have these same things when they pass out. It's just physical. And uh, I went and looked at the study and sure enough, some people who passed out heard kind of vague mumbling in the background, but they couldn't make it out. Well, when Nelson started reporting, it's like, oh, they hear voices just like they do in NDEs. And I'm thinking none of this sounds anything like a near-death experience. <laughs> you hear a little mumbling. It's kind of like me saying I throw things in the kitchen occasionally and uh, Patrick Mahomes and, and other professional football players throw footballs on a football field, it's, it's really the same thing. Well, it's the same in that we're both throwing things, but they're totally different when you look at the near-death experience and compare that to what's going on. That That's a helpful distinction. I think one of the responses I see uh, people who don't buy this will say, well, look, if you trigger this part of the brain or you give LSD, you have a near-death type experience but if we are body and soul, we wouldn't deny that those are possible. The challenge would be that those kind of experiences can't capture all of the data we have about near-death experiences 
and fall short, especially in the cases, like you said, when people know things that they couldn't know in that brain state. Uh, let, let's one, shift one person a said bit. this. Uh, one other thing, if I could. Yeah. One person said near-death experiences look pretty naturalistic as long as you ignore all the supernatural characteristics. And that's one thing that I tend to see. People, okay, LSD experiences. Are they seeing things that have been corroborated here on Earth? Do they know that somebody else died when they couldn't have known it in any other way? If you ignore the supernatural elements, there are some parallels but it's a very different experience. Go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, that's that's great. That's helpful. Let's shift to what you think follows worldview uh, for worldviews from this. Now, in the back of your book, you say this challenges determinism. And a lot of the cases that I'm reading, people are saying there's this sense of choice. Will I go back to life? Will I change my life? And it undermines this deterministic worldview. I think that's interesting. But you also say it challenges the naturalistic worldview. Now, we've been kind of jumping around this and explain it, but why do you think near-death experiences at least challenge naturalism? Well, science, one of the big things in science when we run the scientific method is we say, what, what does your hypothesis predict? So let's say there are two hypotheses. There's the dying brain, naturalistic hypothesis over here, and then there's the uh, afterlife hypothesis, that people are really coming out of their bodies. What would these predict? Well, I really don't think that naturalism would predict, we've talked about this, that there would be closure at the end of this experience hmm. where you're actually coming back. Naturalism would predict that when your heart starts back, your breathing starts back in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a story or whatever. So it just doesn't predict that. Naturalism would predict that children would be pretty much having experiences that go along with their simple worldviews and would, would, would not be coming back reporting the experience. Naturalism would predict that a child would be scared to death at the point of death because they're about to leave everything they know. There, there was a book, uh, let me recommend this little book. Not many people have talked about it. She was a Yale professor, um, retired now, but uh, it's what's, called what's a, window, it's a, little... a Window to Heaven okay. by Diane Comp, MD. Uh, she's retired now, uh, but she was teaching at Yale. She said when she went into her practice, which was pediatric oncology, she uh, was kind of a cross between an atheist and existentialist. She watched her how to describe herself. Um, so she was just fully pretty much a naturalist. And then she went and began to, to, uh, to, to really meet and spend time with her patients who were children and dying of cancer. She was so shocked to find these children saying things like that they were excited to go to the other side. One child got some kind of a, a free vacation thing to Florida, probably to Disney World. And sure. uh, they were saying, uh, hey, are you excited about that trip? And said, well, yeah, but I'm, but I'm more excited about going to heaven. And they're like, this is not predicted by naturalism. What's happening? It wasn't like some of their parents were all that spiritual. But they were having visions toward the end of life that, that were convincing them that they were seeing people on the other side. They were seeing great vistas. They were seeing pets that had died in the past. They were spending time in a place that was more like home than their home here. 
and they they would kind of break the news to their parents. Typically, I don't think people tell children that they're about to die. It's such a foreign concept to sure. them. You just try to ignore that and say, oh, you're feeling better today, whatever. But these children would say that they knew they were going to die. They had been told by someone on the other side, and they were looking forward to going there. And this changed Diane Comp's life because she said, what, what could be happening to these children? They are having, they're not just having vivid dreams. They think it's real. And that to me is one of the things that shows that, that that's an evidence that these things are real. How do I know I'm talking to Sean McDowell right now and not having a dream? Well, it's because this is more vivid than a dream. I interviewed a guy. He was a minister of men in, in a former church I was attending uh, the pastor said so he doesn't hardly tell anybody about this experience, but when he was, he had some kind of septic condition that had set in, and uh, they they didn't know whether he was going to live or not. When he came to, he said that he had had conversations with uh, with with like angelic beings on the other side, and they talked about it and determined that it would be good for him to come back. He said, "I couldn't even talk, but I knew I, I knew that I was going to recover." All these other people didn't know. They were really worried, but he said, I couldn't communicate with them. He said, I knew I was going to come. And I said, well, well, just tell, it was just me and him sitting in a little office. And I said, well, well, tell me just how real was it? Was it kind of like a dream or like a vivid dream? He said, he looked at me and I said, no, it, it, it was real. I, I was there. He said, no, it's, it's realer than this conversation we were mm. having. I was there. Now, that needs to be thought through evidentially. Even if you don't trust the testimonies of other people, these uh, deathbed experiences where people start seeing the people on the other side, angels and deceased relatives, when they've studied it recently in hospices where they ask the patients every day, have they had these experiences? Over 80% of the patients are having these experiences. Now, even if I don't trust other people's experiences, can I, why can't I believe my future self that if I'm very likely to have one of these experiences that I'll be saying it's real? Hmm. I think that there's, this needs to be thought through philosophically and apologetically because there's something here. These people are not saying it's a vivid dream. They know it's real. They may have been atheists before, and they're so, they may say, I'm still, I'm still unsure about God or whatever, but there's another side. There was somebody here to take me to the other side. I think we need to think that thing through a little more clearly about realer than real. That That is so interesting. I literally myself am going to have to think about this through a little bit more because you're right. I hadn't quite pieced that together that these cases of people say, I just know it was clear, it was precise, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, what causes that? And where does that come from? That's a very fair question, I think, uh, to ask. Let me ask you what falls for this. There's been a few uh, questions that have come through about Jesus and kind of some other worldview implications that follow. Mm -hmm. I've kind of looked at this similar to J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas in their book, I think, is it Beyond Death or uh, Immortality Beyond Death? And they say this isn't special revelation like scripture, an angel, a prophet. It's more general revelation. 
because people of different worldviews across cultures, across races, across ages have these kind of supernatural experiences and affirms that you're more than the body and at least minimally there's life after death. Mm -hmm. evidentially speaking. Now, because I'm a Christian, when I hear stories of people describing heaven, it fits within my narrative. So I believe a lot of those stories, but I don't know that I can find them as evidentially significant because they can't be corroborated in the same way. When you look at these stories, do you agree with that? Do you think it's a kind of natural revelation that challenges naturalism, says there's more to us than the body, and there's at least a minimal kind of life after death? Do you agree with that? Or would you say it even tells us more? Well, I suppose we've got the most evidence uh, that you're actually coming out of your body. There's more to us than just a physical body and a physical brain. Uh, that's the strongest evidence because we do have that corroboration. But, um, you know, some testimonies are talking about other things that they heard from the being of light or heard from an angel. Like uh, we we're talking about Mary Neal and her hearing that her son was going to die in the future. And that kind of sounds like something else was going on more than just a separation from the body. And if they had a realer than real experience where they actually saw their body from outside of their body, I tend to believe them when they say they went and had their life reviewed by a being of light and they saw mm. angels and others. It just seems to me to fit together. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe everything somebody says about a near-death experience. Sure. Now, think about it. Okay, right now we're trying to get uh, – we're, we're wanting to take a shot so that we can resist uh, COVID. Um, when, you, when these things are studied, a certain percentage of people get well. A certain percentage of people maybe get sick. All kind of weird things happen. There's always a, a minority of people who have strange symptoms. Uh, a lot of women get report getting pregnant. Was that caused by it? I mean, there are all kind of anomalies that happen. So that's why I tried to stay away from just reading the uh, heaven tourism books of all these people reporting their private experiences. I don't know these people. I don't know whether to believe them or not. Uh, and so if they start reporting weird theology and things, I don't go, oh, my goodness, I have to believe this because I believe in near-death experiences. Gotcha. No, no. Uh, God says that miracles can happen in the Bible, but also there are fabrications of miracles. God talks about prophecy in the Bible, but there's also false prophecy. So I think in the same way, there are going to be false reports of near-death experiences. There's going to be some patients who actually have a near-death experience, but also maybe they have a hallucination. Or maybe some of these people are not totally mentally there. They have mental illness, and they're reporting. So you don't believe everything that you hear. That's biblical. Okay, don't believe everything that you hear. And um, but, but I do believe there's good evidence that they're actually... See, I wouldn't say it's heaven. It's not a final heaven like that happens after the final judgment and sure. new heavens and new earth. I'd say it's more of a vestibule to heaven. Some of the Jews believed in like seven levels of heaven. Uh, yeah. The Apostle Paul talked about going to the third heaven. Well, maybe there are different levels. How can we know? Why, why should we restrict our view of what all is a part of heaven? I, I call it a vestibule. Probably we haven't really gone all the way through to the whole thing. But it's the other side, and I think it's God, and I think it's angels. 
That's really interesting. I, I appreciate that you don't want to read too much into this, but also don't want to dismiss accounts and try to look at them carefully and critically um, and in a sense skeptically, but also charitably in that sense. I think that's a fair way to approach it. I appreciate that. Hey, those of us who are joining us, we're obviously getting towards the end, but I really want to recommend your book, Near Death Experiences. I told you that I have uh, just one book, Near Death Experiences. When I teach my class on the resurrection, I spend just about an hour, hour and a half talking about near-death experiences because obviously it doesn't get us to resurrection, but it's a part of a larger case that there's life after death, that we're not just body, that we're soul. And I cite and use this book extensively. So anybody watching this going, you know what? I want to go a little deeper. Again, check out uh, uh, Steve Miller's book, Near-Death Experiences. And then I also would really recommend this book called The Science of near-death experiences, which is by University of Missouri Press, a bunch of medical doctors in peer-reviewed journals. And again, if you don't buy it, fine. I would just encourage people to read it charitably and with an open mind and evaluate it. And one of the common themes that I found among near-death experience uh, researchers is a sense of surprise like, wow, not sure I expected that going into this. There's more here. And some of that I think is like you alluded to earlier that we've heard kind of bad stories that have been just popularized. Those bad stories shouldn't take away from the careful documentation by doctors who are not all Christians who are really looking into this. So I really uh, appreciate you coming on, appreciate your thoughts. Now, I'm gonna ask you just one or two more questions. We'll wrap up. I wanna, I wanna respect your time. But how has studying near-death experiences for over a decade plus affected you personally? Well, I told you how growing up I went through periods of doubt and questioning, and I've continued to have to work, work through things as I've gone along in life. To me, it's just like if I were to deny that near-death and deathbed experiences were truly experiences with the afterlife, I, I just have to. I, I don't know how I would explain that naturalistically. It's like I would have to think that there's some kind of international conspiracy where people get together and say, OK, here's what we're going to say happened to us. Uh, I, I would have to explain away why these children know they're going to heaven mm -hmm. and are excited about dying of all things. I'd have to explain this realer than real experience that. And when I talk about talking to these people, these are sane people, just like me and you, people that I respect, level-headed people, why they're telling me they've been there. Now, if it's 4% of the population that's experienced this, then uh, again, one out of 25, that's millions of people. Imagine, Sean, let, let's say we we're in a court of law and uh, you are in a jury and you're trying to make a decision on something. There's certain types of evidence that people, and this is something I hear atheists say, and they'll say, well, I just don't trust any personal experience. Uh, oh, my goodness. You know, you, uh, you know, so you've got to accept some, but, the, it, the, but especially important or when people say, uh, when, when someone is giving an eyewitness testimony and it's going to hurt them in giving the testimony. That's why most people don't talk about these experiences that they've had. They're afraid people will think they're crazy. They're afraid they'll be sent to the psych ward. Um, also, in deathbed experiences, these people are about to die. 
uh, I saw, I believe it was an episode of Gunsmoke with my mom when I was taking her and Marshall <laughs> Dillon was interviewing. He, he talked to somebody who was dying and he told somebody later, he said, death, death has a way of scaring people to the truth. People don't tend to want to just make up things when they're dying. So we need to mm-hmm. listen to them. And you know what I find out through these? It just gives me an assurance that we're on the right track. There is an afterlife. And in none of these experiences have I seen anybody showing off their Super Bowl rings, showing off their degrees on the wall, all these things that we think are so important. You know what? It's really just about God and love and people. Hmm. And Valentine's Day is coming up. And some of you are thinking, what am I going to get? No, no, no. You need to be thinking of who are you going to give something to? Who am I going to make feel special? And when people have their lives reviewed, they see what these other people were thinking when they treated them harshly or when they cut them down. It's all about God. It's all about love. It's all about other people. And it's not about all these things we get so wrapped up about. It just gives me an assurance that we're on the right track. Love God, love people. You know, it is interesting. Minimally, you could say one lesson from this that God could be telling us is exactly what you said. It's a kind of natural revelation that strips away what doesn't matter and focuses on what do, what really does matter. You have another book you've just written, sent me. I apologize. I've not had a chance to go through it uh, and send you my thoughts, but we'll have you back on to talk about it. It's on deathbed experiences mm-hmm. and why I think your near-death experience research you're kind of taking what other people have done and saying, here's how you understand it in one volume. I think you're doing yes. some fresh research on this that other people have not tackled. So it's probably, when do you expect that that will be out on deathbed experiences? I'm trying to get it out by the end of this year. Okay. All right, good. Well, let me know months ahead. We'll have you back on and we will we will talk about this and cover it. You know, I'll tell you one quick story. I'm not charismatic, Steve. I'm mm-hmm. just skeptical when I honestly, when I hear about miracle claims and near-death experiences, I'm just naturally skeptical. It's how God's wired me. I, I, I've always I, been that way. I go and I study at a local coffee shop. And one morning I was like, you know, I'm going to go to a, a different one. And I met a guy there for years. I see him studying about, um, uh, he works at a local church and leads a men's Bible study. I always see him at this other one every few weeks. Well, he comes walking into this uh, coffee shop. I've never seen him at before. Comes up sits down he says can i sit down and share something with you like out of blue i was like sure he goes can i share a near-death experience with you and he shares this moving emotional powerful story i don't know him that well we've just had some conversations at the end he goes what do you think i said well i came to this coffee shop and right in front of me and i pulled out of my backpack i said i have all these books on near-death experiences because i just sat down to write some lectures on this And let me tell you, you're not crazy. And I started walking through the data with him and he was just blown away. Now, I'm sure Mm -hmm. someone could explain that away as a coincidence. But the more I read some of the stuff, the more I pause, I'm like, wow, there's something powerful here that would at least encourage skeptics to consider with an open mind and not just write it off. So check out uh, Steve Miller's book, Near Death Experiences, a great place to start. Hey, we've got some interviews coming up on some topics that'll be really interesting. We have one coming up on cannabis and the Christian. Interestingly enough, can Christians smoke pot, marijuana? How should we think about this? 
Uh, we're going to talk about the case for capitalism and socialism next week with Jay Richards. We'll not want to mm-hmm. miss, miss that. Three of my favorite people coming on to do behind-the-scenes interview. Wayne Grudem has agreed to come on. Nancy Piercy and Lee Strobel to just talk about kind of a lot of stories they haven't shared publicly, people that influenced their lives, books that shaped them, just experiences that they've had that shaped them as people and ministers. Those are some of my favorite interviews to do. So make sure you hit the subscribe button and a little notification so you know when these interviews are coming up uh, very soon. Last thing, again, this channel is sponsored by Biola Apologetics, so we would love to have you come study with us. We just started, Steve. This is good for you to know because I know people ask you. We now have a fully distance program where people don't have to come out to campus, and it's the top-rated apologetics program. We have students from every profession, like every walk of life, ages, Mm -hmm. races, you name it, who are like, I just want to study apologetics, and we've got a first-class uh, team, we'd love to help you with that. So if you just look in the notes below, there's a link to that. We'd love to have you think about joining us. So Steve, hang on, don't disappear. I kept you a couple minutes over than I had promised, but thanks everybody for joining us. I look forward to seeing you on our next interview coming up soon. Have a great night. Thank you so much.